This is Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the retail doctor. Studies have shown 50% or more of retail, actual real prices are set based on costs. They say, here's what our cost is, and here's what we want our markup to be, so here's our price. And that's the wrong way to do it, right? It's just not ideal. <laughs> the right way is to look at the value of your product to a customer. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with your host, Bob Fibbs the champion for a more human connection in retail for over 30 years as a retail doctor. Bob is the authority on brick and mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest luxury brands to independent retailers of all sizes. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm talking with Robert Schindler. He's a professor of marketing at Rutgers Camden and is the author of the intriguing book, Pricing Strategy, Harvesting Product Value. Welcome, Rob. Well, thank you. Thank you. Glad to have you here. So um, pricing strategies isn't something you probably wanted to do when you were in third grade and wrote down in a book somewhere. So can you share a little bit about your journey into the world of pricing strategies and what got you interested in the oh, first place? Um, that that started my, my, um, uh, my interest in pricing started way back when I was working, before I came into academics, I was working at AT&T doing market research. This was this was the days when um, AT&T was, you know, telephone service was still being regulated. It was in the 70s. And, and it was monolithic. It was monolithic. Before, yeah, it was Ma up, Bell yeah. and all that. Was, yeah. But we were AT&T, and they were gearing up for being in the competitive environment. And um, so one of the things that came up, I was in the market research department, and um, one of the things that came up was they were thinking of doing a... Um, price promotion, some kind of special deal that you can get discount on long distance calls. And so they wanted to know how much more calling they could expect from that. So they sent some, you know, they, 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 they sent a, a request down to their business analysis section and they came up, they said, well, the price elasticity of long distance calls is really very low. It's about 0.5 or 0.6. I mean, that's what's been, had been over the, the, uh, the decades right before that. So we don't expect a whole lot of, you know, response to this uh, price promotion. I said, well, hold a minute, wait a minute. The, you know, the, the ordinary, you know, price elasticity figured from ordinary price changes is not going to predict what's going to happen when you set up a deal. It's going to be a really different thing. And they said, oh, really? No, that, that, no, we're economists. We, you know, we got degrees in this. We, this is what, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and that got me interested in the whole issue of pricing. You know, economics doesn't, doesn't do justice to it. Yet it's something that every business person, every business organization has to deal with. Every business organization has a price and they, and they have to manage it. And yet, you know, economic science is not ready to deal with it. So that was that was the start of my interest in it. Wow, that that is fascinating. Um, so there really is a way you could figure out if I have this price promotion, what does it have to do for it to break even or to go back and say, wow, that was a dud versus let's just put that stuff on sale and see what happens. Yeah. There's a science to it. And that's what I, that's what I appreciate. So, uh, you know, we had a, a engaging, a bit of pre, uh, call here when we were talking about the myth of the last digit nine price. Okay. And you are quite intrigued by that. Those of you who are maybe not retailers may not be familiar, but every price, uh, has to end with something. And we have some people now that feel like, oh, well, it's $35 and that's what it is. And then there's other people that say, well, 
it's $34.99, maybe we'll sell more by visually seeing that penny less. And then there's other people that say, well, 97 is good for a regular price and 99 is good for a sale price. And um, I think we all figure that's conventional wisdom. Like, you know, somebody saying, well, yeah, there's gravity. That's why apples <laughs> fall. But is that, is that the case, Rob? Um, it is common. It absolutely is common. And I love that analogy <laughs> because um, the, the, uh, the research on, on it, and I've, I've been studying this actually for 40 years, and um, the research on it is amazing that they have found nine-ending pricing in just about every country that people have done research on. About, you know, it's, you know, even in, in, you know, in Europe, South America, Asia, and I'll t- with, with a special, uh, a special um, consideration, but even places like Israel, where they, where they don't even read from right to left, they read from left to, you know, they don't read from right to left, that, uh, you know, the, the, there's still, inter- you know, there's still use of nine-ending pricing. And um, so it's, it's like something that happens everywhere in the world, every kind of product, even for business pricing, as well as consumer pricing, and it's been something that's been found. It's not just a recent thing. You know, it was found a century ago, uh, or, and, and more. You know, maybe into the middle of the 19th century, you can trace the origin of that back. Uh, so it's so it's something that is sort of it's been around for like ever, and it's everywhere. But does it really work? Yeah. Right? Is there is there science that supports any of yeah, that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, there have been you know dozens of studies on it, and uh, uh, recently, there's been a meta-analysis on it. Do you know what a meta-analysis is? Tell our tell our uh, it's, an, it's it's a, a study of studies, right? That you know they, they public a lot of times they'll publish a study on something. They'll say, "Oh, that's the answer." Well, when you're in academics, you know that one study, even if it's published in a good journal, it's not necessarily the answer. They had particular conditions when they did their study, and it might be maybe there was something in those particular conditions that caused those results. So you want to see it replicated. You want to see it come up a lot of times. And very often when it comes up a lot of times, it's not always the same result. So people then after, you know, it's an important issue. People do study after study on it, different people, different parts of the world, different kinds of researchers. And, uh, and then eventually someone wants to collect all this data and say, oh, overall, is there an effect? You know, here's, here's the 72 studies that have been done on this. And we put them in a standard form here and we did an analysis on it. That's a meta-analysis. So a recent meta-analysis on um, nine-ending pricing showed that it, you know, the studies of whether it works, whether it increased sales, more often than not, the studies have shown that it does. But there was a tremendous amount of variation in the studies. Uh, many studies found that it didn't work, and many studies found that it even had an opposite, a negative effect on sales. So How is that possible? Yeah. How could it have a negative effect on right. sales? The negative effect comes from two sources. One is that it might lead to a questioning of the quality of the product because nine endings are associated with discounts and bargains. And sometimes bargains are associated with not really the best quality of things. So, you know, that, that could be a source of negative, uh, a negative effect. And um, that is, you know, the studies have, I think that have found most likely to find that effect are studies, not studies for prestige products, because they, they already, you know, you can, you can get a Gucci handbag for $1,299, right? Because they, they don't have to worry about their quality, you know, it, it hurting the quality perception. 
because they already got a good name, right? But if you're if you're not well known and you're trying to establish quality or, or something like that, that's another issue. And I, I thought that was best illustrated by a study that uh, where they looked at advertisements for LASIK eye surgery. Right, very risky kind of. I'm sorry, I don't want a two for one for LASIK <laughs> surgery, my friend. Yeah, and, and nine ending really nine endings really hurt in that in that category. That's right. Or the when I uh, a new sushi place opened up when I lived in Long Beach, uh, California, and the opening wink was two for one, and it's like, yeah, no, two for one sushi just sounds bad, no matter how you look and, at and, it, and right? So, so, so nine endings, point, yeah, sound a lot like discounts, two for one deals. It's a, it sounds like market, you know, being marketed. Yeah. So that's how it can. That's one so, way it can have negative, and the other way uh, it can be negative is because it connotes manipulation. You know, a lot of people they look at it twenty nine ninety nine. Yeah, come on, that's thirty dollars. What are you What are you trying to pull, right? And and that and then for certain businesses, you know, you want to establish trust and rapport and all that may not be ideal. Wow, that's that is fascinating because um, I don't think most of us ever think of a of a dark side when it comes to using a, a price like that. Um, what do you think the key factor is that so many retailers overlook when it comes to setting the right price for their products? Well, uh, probably, and, and yeah, uh, probably. Let's take it for example. I, I bought this widget and it's 15 bucks. So I'm going to keystone it. It's 30 yeah. and uh, that sounds good. 30, yeah. eh. That sounds high. Eh, twenty four ninety nine. I think there are plenty of uh, small retailers that do it that way. I think the biggest retailers, of course, know planning is about not just what you're putting on the shelf for today, but then thinking what the sell through is in thirty days, et cetera. So, in that context, um, what could you offer about being that that missing piece that so many people just don't consider? Yeah, well, I think the 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 main uh, answer that I have to that question is right there in your in, in the question. You know, you're saying you're keystoning, keystoning it. In other words, you're basing your price on your cost. And that and and you know, this is not just my book. <laughs> this is you know, among people who have studied pricing, this is common knowledge that that the way to be effective pricing is not to use cost-based pricing. You're you're, you're throwing you're you're almost certainly throwing away profits if you use cost-based pricing. And nevertheless, even though it's been said in many ways, many times over, over, the, over the decades, still, you know, studies have shown 50% or more of, of retail, actual real prices are set based on costs. They say, here's what our cost is, and here's what we want our markup to be, so here's our price. And that's the wrong way to do it, right? It just, it's just not ideal. <laughs> So what's the right way the right, to do it? Everyone is on pins and noodles. Needles, the right way is, to, is to look at the value of your product to a customer. So let's go back to my $15 widget. It's 15 bucks. Let's say it's um, it's a hammer that's got a magnet in it. So, you know, you can put it on the nail and it won't, uh, it won't move off. So that's pretty specialized, a higher value than buying a hammer. The first for part of estimating the value to the customer is to see what the what the next closest substitute is the hammer that doesn't have that special attachment, right? But how much is that? What's the price of that? Ten dollars. And then you say, well, how much is this extra feature worth to the customer? And you have to do a little bit of research on that. And that's why it's probably not often done. 
do you know, at least talk to customers and find how much that's worth for them. What is what does it enable them to do that they wouldn't be able to do before, and how much does that save them because they can now do that that they didn't have to do before. And you as you as you learn these things that the that the product can do for the customer, you add that onto the price and add that onto the price until you got an estimate of what it's worth to the customer, and then set a little bit less than that, and you're ready to go. <laughs> That's great. And I think that's uh, so important that we go through and think about what does it save? You know, um, the, as soon as you said that, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Now this hammer, I should probably retail at 40 bucks, let's say. Well, it's a lot harder to sell a $40 hammer than it is a $10, right? Because I can just say hammers on sale, $9.99. Yeah, there it is again. Uh, but a $40 hammer, someone's going to have to explain that. The hammer can't do it itself, right? So if I have that conversation with you, Rob, and you're like, how many times do you hit your your hand, your fingers on a hammer, like when you're doing this deck? All the time, man. <laughs> what if would it be worth it if when you went to do it, it actually made sure it stayed on that? Absolutely. Well, without that conversation, the guy is looking at it and like, all right, $10 hammer and a $40 hammer. What a bunch of crap is that? A $40 hammer? What do I need that for? Oh, it's got a magnet. So what? Right? So part of this product uh, strategy has to come into what else has to happen on the sales floor. Would you agree? Yes. Or, or if not on the sales floor in the advertising, yeah, there, there has to be some communication to the customer of the benefits of the product. You know, your book delves into various pricing strategies. Can you highlight one that you find really fascinating or effective for retailers in uh, 2023? A, a, a particular, particular strategy for. Yeah. You know, just one that you found fascinating as you were studying all of this, you know, somebody does it a different way than you're recommending or, um, you know, or take something that somebody you see people do all the time, lost leader, right? Oh, they bought this for, let's go back to my hammer. Cause it was easy for our audience. Bought for 15 should be 40, uh, sell it for 35. But what if I sold it for like 1599, then I'd get more people in. Right. That's what we do. It's a loss leader. It's less than I paid or it's just barely making cost. Is that smart marketing? Oh, it might be. It might be. Loss leaders might be. But I think the, uh, you know, the, the thing that, you know, if we're talking about modern retailing, the thing that that makes the difference is 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 the tech now that's possible, like electronic shelf labels. I mean, that is a, a, a just an enormous um, benefit, enormous technological change that makes pricing better. Um, the, um, you know, before then, you know, the, the, it was difficult to change the price. You had to have someone go out there and scratch it off or put on a different label. And, uh, and it was, it was costly. And so you didn't do it that often. Now it can be done instantaneously and in response to, to very, very immediate conditions, sort of like online. So now, now physical store retailing can have those same kinds of, that, that same kind of price flexibility. That online retailing has, and it's 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 has the potential for really increasing profitability. Yeah, I, I can see this in convenience stores. I could see this in grocery stores. Um, I'm not sure who else outside those two categories right. prices change that much. Walmart, Coles, there, you know, uh, Coles, Coles yeah, has completely gone to electronic shelf pricing. I think Walmart's in the process of doing it. It's 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 a it's big. You know, it's a big advance in pricing. 
And then who is setting that? Is it AI? AI is reaching around the world and saying, oh, I can see Amazon and 8,000 other retailers are charging this around the world. And if. Yep, 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 exactly. I mean, it doesn't have to be that around the world if you're talking about particular stores. Each area, an individual each, can each do coal that. store has different close, close by competitors that can, their prices can be tracked, you know, electronically. And then, you know, and then sales earlier the day, you know, environmental conditions, you know, economic conditions can all be fed in quickly and, 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 and change the price. Well, I think on a macro level, that makes sense because those people is a game of pennies, right? I mean, if they can get any extra margin or, or, or balance it against, you know, the weather is coming up. We got to get all the umbrellas out to the front, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> uh, it's, it certainly is a bigger deal for the big boxes. But I think, you know, people listen to this are not necessarily those big ones or those big online retailers. And that competitive balance between, you know, getting the right price and being competitive, um, I think it's a struggle for everybody. And, you know, what, what drives you nuts when you talk to retailers about the way they price and what, what kind of a takeaway? Obviously, they should be reading your book. We all understand that pricing strategy, harvesting product value, product value. But um, what could you tell them to kind of help? Uh, well, the, um, you know, the, big, the big thing is to, is to be customer oriented. In other words, start with the value to the customer, at least in your thinking. And even if you can't do a lot of research on it, you can do some estimating. In other words, don't, you know, don't focus your pricing on, on costs. Don't um, have you know, standard margins, standard markups. You know, that, that you're almost certainly losing money. The other kind of losing potential profit by doing that. Um, pricing benefits from flexibility. Um, the other thing that people probably underestimate is the, the idea of price discrimination, that, that you can set different prices under different conditions. And so we know that. Can you give an example of yeah, that? Well, we can, you could, you, you know, you could, I mean, if you buy three, you get this discount or, you know, half, you know, five, a dollar a piece, you know, uh, 10, uh, 10 for a dozen, $10 for a dozen, something like that. Those, that's a simple kind of thing where, where they're buying more, you're giving them a lower per unit price. And that's because people who buy more are likely to be more price sensitive. There's a logic to it. So, but you can do other kinds of things. You can look at people who've bought one kind of product. They might be particularly, you know, if, they, if you know they want one kind of product, if they have certain kind of, um, you know, wood furniture, they bought one piece of wood furniture for their living room, then, then you know something about that, that they're, they like wood, wood furniture, other kinds of uh, uh, furniture that they might be interested in. So, so then you can then... Uh, uh, you know, uh, have have deals for them or have have the promotions for them that would give them sort of uh, a better price for you know to encourage them to sort of do things that are consistent with their earlier purchases and 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 that, that those kinds of things you know you know the idea of price sensitivity can be um, price discrimination can be pretty elaborate it doesn't need to just be by volume or by you know, the area where the person is. It can, it can also be by, by the time of the year, time of day, time of week, time of month, um, and all kinds of past purchase issues can be used as, as fences to, to give some people one price and other people another price. And, and that's, yeah, and and that's the all... secret. That's a, a secret, you know, besides customer-based pricing is, is price discrimination, in other words, price segmentation using 
using having having different prices for different product purchasing situations. Yeah, the challenge we're all waiting for is the facial recognition that charges you more because it yeah. sees you drive an Audi than the guy who drives a Hyundai. And I don't think we're far away from that. I think that AI is going to find ways. Certainly online, it's going to be able to know who you are. Uh, harder in a store, but not that hard. Right? That's. I'm glad you brought that up, Bob, because that suggests, I mean, that indicates, that reminds me of a limit of this kind of thing. Uh, and you know, when this technology was first getting started, like 20 years ago, they, they came up with these uh, Coke machines that would measure the temperature the, the, the temperature around it. And when it's hotter, they charge a higher price for the Coke than it was cooler, right? I love that. Well, they, they, you know, it's sort of like the textbook which says that's price discrimination, you know, it's price segmentation there. But um, but people hated it. You know, they thought it was unfair. They, they thought it was, was you know... Um, you know, just not not good business, and so they put this taking back, advantage they put, of yeah again being taken advantage of manipulative, and so they backed off on that, and so that tells that reminds us of the limits of this. You know that that if a, if a retailer tries to go too hard too hard into this, there'll be negative perceptions, and that really sort of reminds me about one of the 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 interesting aspects of of studying of, of writing about pricing is looking into the history of it, and. Um, you know, one one of the things that that is interesting is the history of the one price policy. We're living now in the in the in the era of the one price policy, which means you know same price for all. But but the origins of that are surprisingly recent. You know, is maybe two hundred years ago, maybe you know, le- less than two hundred years ago. They no one had one price policy. Everyone was you know negotiating, haggling. You haggle with the seller, right? Now haggling with the seller is a lot like that Coke machine that gets a higher price when it's warmer. You know, he looks he looks you up and down. He gets he gets the sense of what's involved, right? And that was the way it was forever, right? From the beginning of commerce back in the you know uh, ten thousand years ago. And uh, so it, interestingly, in Britain, you know, in the sixteen hundreds, it started this religious sect that was started, the the Society of Friends, which we now know as the Quakers. Their, their leader, George Fox, said, you know, all this stuff is, is, is manipulative, you know, charging different prices for different people. You know, you know Quakers were, were big on merchants. So he said, let's have, you know, all Quaker merchants should have one price for, for everyone. You know, this was like a religious thing. And the uh, surprise was that people liked it. And the Quaker stores did better. The Quaker merchants did better because they had the one price policy. And when that got around, it started to spread to other retailing. And then when they came up with the cash register, you know, that it just it just exploded, and it became the common knowledge, you know, common thing that we have now. But it, but it's really very recent, the one price policy. And the point is now with technology, now we have we're starting to be able to get away, you know, get go back to the old way, and we have to remember why the one price policy is is there to begin with. <laughs> and we can thank the Quakers for that, my friend. Well, listen, before we continue, we love our loyal listeners, and I'd appreciate it if you would do me a favor and give us a five-star rating on this episode. And we're going to return after this this word from SalesRx Online Retail Sales Training. Hey, it's Bob again. I'm not only your host, but also the founder of the SalesRx Online Retail Sales Training Program. How many sales that should have been yours walked out your front doors today? You know, with shoppers being more discerning about where and when they shop, You need to convert more lookers to buyers, and SalesRx is the perfect solution to make training memorable. 
It's bite-sized. It can fit easily into your schedules. Don't tell me you don't have time to train. If you can give them time to take a break, you have time for them to train. Now, the training builds from some of the quickest ways to engage shoppers to the most advanced. Everything is planned so you can implement your sales training program with a click of a button. And there's a reason we're on four continents training thousands because sales are exascalable. Everybody learns the same new skills that will grow your sales. In fact, 83% of users report a double-digit increase in their sales within six months. Wouldn't you like that to be your story? Visit SalesRx to learn more and set up a call with me to see how we can help. That's S-A-L-E-S-R-X.com. Now back to the broadcast. And we're back talking pricing with Robert Schindler, professor of marketing at Rutgers University, Camden. He is the author of Pricing Strategies. So, you know, with the rise of e-com and online retail, how do you see the relationship changing between physical stores and their online counterparts when it comes to pricing strategies? We've all had that experience where a friend or something, they saw something online, they went into the store, and then they're like, oh, that's an online price. We can't give you that. And they're like, why not? Or... Oh, yeah, that coupon's only good if you buy it online. And, you know, the smart retailers are realizing it's got to be one basket. So if you buy it online, you buy it in a store. But we're far from that for most retailers. So um, how do you see that relationship changing with pricing strategies? Um, well, I think they'll, they'll, there's, there's always going to be a, um, uh, a place for, for physical stores. And uh, I think that's that's the kind of a value that's being added. People want to go to, they want to physically examine the product. They want to have service. They want to have people that they can they can interact with, sometimes at least. And so when you're offering that, you can charge a little more for it. It's, it's based on pricing to the customer value. You're creating a little value that the online purchasing doesn't, you know, doesn't do. I guess, I guess online purchasing has its own kind of value that you can get a selection that's better than any physical store could provide. And so they can charge yeah, I don't know about they that. Can charge that we've, all been, we've all scrolled through those endless ads that we think, oh, yes, maybe I'll buy this. Then you get stuck on like page five and you're like, just get me out of here. This is horrible. And um, let's be honest, all the direct-to-consumer uh, noise that we heard the last three or four years has fallen down to a whimper even nike suddenly like oh we're going back in wholesale big time because they realize the limits of direct to consumer and the pricing uh, they're not making money at it by the time you figure in what all it takes to get in front of that customer and then to ship the order and know that 30 percent of that merchandise is coming back automatically or higher depending if it's clothing or whatever um you know we we hear a lot of noise right now around theft. Oh, everything's being stolen everywhere from everyone all the time. Maybe, but we really don't hear much about um, the details of pricing things online. You, you are at the subject uh, mercy of Amazon and the big boys. Um, would you agree with that? Um, it's a long way to say that, but uh, <laughs> just, just the big, that if I was an independent, that, yeah, I have it in my store, but for me to make a profit, let's say it's seventeen ninety nine, but online it's twelve ninety nine from my biggest competitors. Should I make mine twelve ninety nine and just no, say no. that's it, I, or I am I willing so. to say no? I, I don't think so, because again, the store offers 
benefits that the online purchase doesn't. You can you can demonstrate the product, you can try it on, you can use it, you can talk about it. There's the human element that I know you 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 uh, often talk about is very important. People will pay for that. Now the challenge, of course, for the for the physical store is to have something like this, the the selection. In other words, I, I think that sometimes people go to go to a store and they're looking for something and they don't they don't have in, in stock just the right thing. And then then they're then they end up going online. And uh, that's that's always been a challenge with uh, for for retailing. And and so if they can if you can maybe maybe make you know uh, find a way to manage that to have the kind of variety and selection. That, that your customers will want. I think that the physical store offers benefits that can be charged for, that, that the customers Absolutely. will pay for. If it's right there, they can take it away, the person can show them, show them it, talk, talk to them about it, tell them it's great, it looks wonderful on you, <laughs> you know, you're gonna buy it even if it's considerably more than you could get it online. I think that that's, that would I, work. I think but, it's, right. but, it, but, it, but it takes the retailer to, to um, to take seriously the challenges, you've got to have the product. If, if, if the, the, the person, the customer comes to the store and it's not there, the customer says, well, I'll go online and find it there. There you go. You lost them. And to your point, in this day and age, when so many retailers are putting all their inventory into one master system so that there is, you can see I have three in Catskill, I have two in New York City, and I go down there and they say, no, we don't have that. Oh, that computer's always wrong. Um, you've lost credibility in that moment and, and a system that should always be going great um, it becomes a kicking post because maybe the employee didn't look hard enough. I'm, that's what I, I usually go from the systems are probably more correct than you're willing to do, but it might take a little bit. Um, you know, switching to you've been uh, had challenge with helping brands develop their pricing structures. Are there any aha moments or breakthroughs uh, maybe a success story that you could share with us and our uh, audience today. Hmm. Um, let's see. Not nothing comes to mind as a as an example of of a breakthrough kind of pricing. Uh, what What about in your students? Do they come in with a pre uh, determined good or bad image of what pricing should be like? Uh, well, I think they come in with. Uh, you see, what I have is a lot of students that are marketing business students, and they're not economic students. And so they're not, you know, the economics students are going to be really very, very comfortable with the math of pricing, but the business school students are less so. So what I've done in the, in the course and in the book is simplified the math behind pricing so that anybody can do it. And uh, it just takes high school algebra. To understand it and, and, and less than that to actually do it. But if you really want to understand it, you have to dig up your high school algebra. But everyone can do that. And I think that they love that, you know, that, that, uh, and, and the idea that it's, that it, um, that, that they, they really understand by the end of the course, what it means to be customer oriented in pricing, that you really set the price based on what the customer's value is, how the customer values the product rather than your costs, how that's, that's the key to, profitable pricing once once they've got you know it's, it's like light bulbs light up for them and i think they're different than they than they uh, w- would have been <laughs> even if they had never taken that course yeah. no that that makes total sense um but i'm sure when somebody 
wants to implement these new pricing structures based on customer use and what they get out of it, there must be pushback from the people. This is the way we've always done it. And this is the MSRP and this is what we should do. I don't want to rock the boat. Is there a fear in changing pricing structures? Probably, uh, you know, probably uh, the people who I talk to are ready to change, but you know, the st- the studies show that 50, 50% of the people still use cost-based pricing. I mean, it's, uh, we can tell, your listeners, Bob, if you're using cost-based pricing, you're not making as much money from your as you could be making. Period. I love that. I love that. I'm I'm dealing with a business makeover, and the uh, one of the former guys, the buyer, loved getting deals. He would tell me, "Oh, the margin. Oh, I get this great margin." And and I look at it, and it's still on the floor, and I'm just like, "Dude, you know, margin without demand is worthless." And and so. At this time of year, we're, you know, in the fall and coming into the holidays, reps will come to somebody and say, you know, oh, I've got this great deal for you. Is there any way you can evaluate a deal, whether you should take it or not, whether it makes sense uh, when it comes to pricing or should you just go like, wow, I can get it for this and be thrilled? As a customer? As As a retailer, as a retailer. Right. So a vendor comes and invariably they'll say, hey, I can give you, you know, a pallet of this, a X price. And, uh, you know, if you can take all of it, then great. So you're used to this product, you know, it's price point, I'm going to make great margin on it. But is there a way to know um, whether you should do that or not? I would suggest that that your planning not be your, your, your product purchase agenda should not be made by the salespeople of your vendors. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad strategy to begin with if you want to make money. You should be looking at your customers and seeing what they want and seeing how you could get what they want in the particular form of it and for you know for the best price. And if you if you let the your vendors set the agenda, you're uh you're not on a good path. <laughs> oh, that that was worth the whole interview, I think. <laughs> but I I was, you know, I I I, I would. I wanted to say a little more, a little bit of uh, something about the uh, the value of discounts to consumers. In other words, your 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 uh, your listeners should should appreciate. I mean, I know you know retailing is. I mean, discounts are very very big in retailing, and um, and but I think they're they're going to have to be. There's something about the discount that works a magic to people to, to consumers, and um, and so I think it's you know. It's it's going to be around for the, the long term <laughs> discounts, and and the, um, the get a glimpse of it. I was once doing a study on on price, you know, on, on deal prone consumers, uh, consumers who like to get bargains on things. And I remember I was talking to this woman. I was in her house you know, with my tape recorder, and my notebook, and taking notes of of you know interviewing her and all that. And then you know about her the bargains she's got and how she gets them and what she does for that. And at the end of the interview, she said, you know. Um, it, you know, when you want to see some of, you know, some of the things that, that I've gotten a good buy on, I said, oh, sure, sure. You know, we're I'm packing up. And she said, see that sofa over there? That was originally $1,200 and I got it for only $847. So that's great. That's wonderful. And then she went, oh, that chair over there and that test and that table over there. And, you know, and she said, I, that was regularly $700 and I got it for only 349 And I looked at like one of those, uh, she pointed out a, an easy chair at one point. And I noticed it was like threadbare on the arms. I said, hmm, you know, uh, when did you get that? 
And she's like, 1970. Yeah, I mean, what? This was like 20 years ago. She bought that. And yet she still remembers the, the pleasures of getting it on the discount. So in a way, it's become like sacred to her, that the bargain has become something very special to her. And, and I think that when you appreciate how for many people, not everybody, but for many people, getting something on sale is, is like a magical kind of thing. It's they've, they've won against the system. They've, you know, they've, they've, um, it, it, there's, there's, there's a, there's an aura to it. That's really important. And that's why you can't, you know, a retailer can't do without those sales and discounts. You know, the, the retail landscape is littered, littered with people who said it's everyday low price. That's it. Yeah. Not for long. If you want to stay around. JC <laughs> pennies. Don't forget JC pennies. Ron did Johnson. It Sears oh. did it in the eighties. Yep. Sears did it in the 80s God. and what what happened, you know, and you consumers didn't like it and didn't like that feeling. To your point, if I feel smarter, then I'm going to like your brand, right? So that was Bed Bath & Beyond. They got their little coupon or Michaels or JCPenney. And for whatever reason, you should have been smart enough to understood that maybe, you know, they didn't have to run 230 promotions like JCPenney a year. However, you didn't ask the customer. And after you made so many changes, that thing had so many, I think the logo kept changing, the stores, the pricing, the brands, favorite brands were knocked off. And it comes from kind of a hubris, like it doesn't matter, but uh, it does matter. Absolutely. Brand, brands are important because brands help people know that they've gotten sales. They've gotten discounts. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here. Um, what is one golden nugget of wisdom you would give to an aspiring retail entrepreneur who's just stepping into the world of price their products? They've heard you, and now they're questioning themselves like, oh, obviously, they have to read the book. <laughs> we know that. But what would be one thing that you'd be telling someone who really feels out of their depth in this? In, in the pricing of their products? Yeah. Um, get used to the idea of listening to the customer. I mean, I know it's kind of, kind of obvious, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not just sort of when you, when you're doing a sales pitch or something like that in general, if you want to be sensitive to what the customer wants that you don't have to do a lot of, I think a, one reason a lot of co companies don't do, you know, are stuck in their cost-based pricing, you know, the standard margins is because they don't have the resources or the patience to do research, but research doesn't have to be, you know, where you hire, you know, some big, expensive consulting company to work for you, you can just listen to your customers talk and find out what they care about, what matters to them. Okay. And that in your own mind is what you can charge for. <laughs> that tells you what they'll, they're there for, what they care about. That's what they can, that's what they're going to pay for. And you can incorporate that, that is, in your prices. That is great. Well, thanks so much for that, Rob. Now, uh, name of the podcast, tell me something good about retail. So tell me something good about retail to take us home. <laughs> that retailing that retailing is fun uh and 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 i think i i think you know this the human element is is so important and uh i was you know it you know th talking about talking this opportunity to talk to retailers thought brought me back to my earlier days of retailing which was not on the, which was way way earlier like when i was in high school and i worked as a stock boy in a shoe store in a local in a town's shoe store right and I, you know, I was happy. I was down in the basement, opening the crates of shoes, putting them on the shelves, classifying them. And I hear the salespeople upstairs. <laughs> and I remember there was one who had a particularly loud voice. This was a woman's shoe store. And she had a particularly loud voice. 
And all day, starting at you know nine in the morning when the store opened, she would say, it's stunning. It is, that is stunning. All day. <laughs> she was complimenting in this, in this loudest, most extravagant terms, how well, how wonderful, beautiful these women looked with those shoes. And that really, you know, that was like, that's my, mem- my main memory of that place. But it's a, it's a wonderful thing because, each, you know, since then I've done some research on retail blessings, you know, that, that when you, when you, sort of, someone compliments something that you buy, something that you choose, it really makes you like it more. It makes a difference. There, again, it puts an aura over it for you. And that's the potential of retailing. And, and so I know it's the, it, it has to do with the human element that can't quite be duplicated online. That's right. You can't get an AI to say, that looks stunning on you. <laughs> it won't be convincing. <laughs> it won't be convincing. Well, you've been convincing. You're talking pricing strategies with today. And I appreciate it so much for you joining us, Rob. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the retail doctor. As a listener, you can receive free information and guides when you visit retaildoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. Thanks for being with us. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. To virtually bring Bob to all of your crew and associates, check out www.salesrx.com.